Hello, and welcome to Breakpoint, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Fidelia Bernice, and I'm an ID pharmacist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. I think listeners will find today's podcast very interesting as we will be discussing the recently approved long-acting regimen cabotegavir and ropiviline, brand name Cabinuva, for the treatment of HIV-1 infection. I'm really excited to discuss this new therapy with our two expert panelists today. First, we have Dr. Neha Pandit. She is an associate professor at the University of Maryland Baltimore School of Pharmacy and has been an HIV clinical pharmacist at the University of Maryland Midtown Thrive Program for close to 15 years. Hi, everyone. Next, we have Dr. Rodrigo Burgos. He is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy and College of Medicine, where he practices in outpatient infectious diseases, conducts clinical trials, and directs an HIV and ID pharmacy residency program. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So we know that in January 2021, the FDA approved this combination, cabotegravir and ropivirine, for the treatment of HIV. This has been a highly anticipated drug approval for many years. We also know that it was initially rejected by the FDA in December of 2019 for issues related to chemistry manufacturing controls. We don't know exactly what these issues were as they have not been publicly disclosed by the manufacturer, but there weren't any concerns with clinical safety data regarding the therapy. So thankfully, they were able to reapply and were granted approval this year. So we now have the first long-acting injectable for the treatment of HIV. Today's discussion is going to focus on reviewing the pharmacology and pharmacokinetics of cabotegravir and ropivirine, reviewing the phase three clinical data that got it its FDA approval, discussing its place in therapy and any controversies regarding the implementation of this therapy within healthcare systems. So I'll begin with a pharmacokinetic discussion. So cabotegravir, we know, is a new integrase inhibitor that's come to market. Ropivirine is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, or NNRTI, which is already on the market. Neha, do you want to provide some background on the relevant pharmacokinetics and pharmacology of these two drugs? Yes, of course. So first, I'd like to note that what was approved by the FDA, Cabinuva, is a kit. And in the kit, it contains two separate long-acting injectables, one being cabotegravir and another one being rilpivirine. Both medications also come in oral tablets, but note that the oral cabotegravir is only available through the drug company. So let's first talk about cab or cabotegravir. The elimination half-life for most oral integrase inhibitors range from about 9 to 17 hours. However, CABS is about 41 hours, so definitely much longer. When this medication is given as a long-acting intramuscular injection, the half-life actually increases to somewhere between 5 to 11 weeks. Cabotegravir primarily undergoes glucuronidation through UGT1A1, but it does not inhibit or induce any cytochrome P450 enzymes or UGT metabolism. Now talking about rilpivirine, oral rilpivirine's half-life is about 50 hours, which is approximately the same as other oral NNRTI medications in its same class. However, as a long-acting injectable, the half-life increases to about 13 to 28 weeks. Rilpivirine is metabolized by cytochrome P453A4, but it doesn't inhibit or induce any other cytochrome P450 enzymes. It should also be noted that both medications are very highly protein-bound, which does limit its distribution to tissue a bit. This characteristic is important as we look forward to seeing how cabotegravir sort of fares out with the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis. But even despite its limited distribution to specific tissues, adequate tissue concentrations have actually been noted already for cabotegravir. 
Thank you. That's amazing. Rodrigo, anything to add? Well, sometimes I've been asked why Rel Pivoting was chosen to go in this strategy. And we have to remember that potency, meaning a low dose, a low daily dose, is a prerequisite for any injectable antiretrovirals with long dosing, like four weeks or longer. And among the NNRTIs we have now, relpivirine is only 25 milligrams per day, which is much more suitable than efavirenz 600 milligrams or nevirapine or atrovirine, which are a lot more milligrams and require a lot of volume. Additionally, relpivirine is stable in crystalline form and it forms a nice nanosuspension, which avoids the need for larger quantities of excipients to formulate the drug. So I think this is one of the reasons why Pivoting was chosen. That, in addition to all the trials that found safety and efficacy with these two medications as well. That's really interesting. So there have been several studies that evaluated this for treatment as well as cabotegravir for prevention of HIV infection, but today we're going to focus on the two phase three clinical trials that got the combination approved, ATLAS and FLARE. Rodrigo, can you walk us through the results of the FLARE trial? Most certainly. So the FLARE study was a phase three randomized open-label non-inferiority study where treatment-naive adults took induction therapy with dalitegravir, lamivudine, and abacavir for 20 weeks. And if they were undetectable at 16 weeks, then they were randomized one-to-one to continue their current regimen or to switch to long-acting therapy every four weeks for at least 100 weeks. And there were a a total of 283 subjects randomized to each arm. Those randomized to the long-acting treatment received an oral lead-in version for four weeks. And this was to assess safety and tolerability prior to starting the intramuscular injections with the long-acting agents. So the study found no differences in the proportion of patients with detectable viral load that was greater than 50 copies per ml, and this indicated that the long-acting regimen was non-inferior to the oral regimen in maintaining viral suppression. This was corroborated with week 96 results and a secondary endpoint, which was presented last ID week, and as well with week 144 results that were presented at Glasgow later on last year as well. So we can see some durability of this agent in many weeks later as well. And as far as adverse events, they were fairly similar among both arms. Drug-related adverse events were overall higher in the long-acting arm, most of which were injection site reactions, as you can imagine. However, most of these injection site reactions were mild to moderate. Those who did experience grade three or higher type of events, other than injection site reactions, were night sweats, knee monoarthritis, poor quality sleep, and elevated lipase. I also noticed they reported higher incidence of headache in the long-acting treatment compared to the oral therapy. And the rates of discontinuation from either arm were fairly low in this FLARE study. Thank you for that. Neha, can you summarize the ATLAS trial for us? Yeah, so the ATLAS trial sort of followed suit 
with the FLARE study, still a phase three study, non-inferiority study, and except instead of using naive patients, they did use individuals who were already on oral antiretroviral therapy. So essentially it was a switch study. So individuals who were already stable on their current oral antiretroviral therapy who got switched over to a long-acting capitegravir rilpivirine treatment option. In this study, patients had to be on the same oral antiretroviral therapy for at least six months with no virologic failure during that time period. Their baseline oral regimen included 50% of the population that were on an NNRTI-based regimen, 33% on an integrase inhibitor regimen, and 17% on a PI-based regimen. Each arm had 308 patients in it. And at 48 weeks, it was found that 92.5% of individuals in the long-acting group maintained virologic suppression and 95% maintained suppression in the oral antiretroviral group. There was an extension phase that happened afterwards where individuals who were on the oral antiretroviral therapies could have switched to long-acting and some of the population in the ATLAS study did choose to switch over to the long-acting. At 96 weeks, over 95% of individuals who made that switch to long-acting injectable medications were also suppressed. So data going all the way up to 96 weeks for, for the ATLAS study. Right, so we see really good efficacy data in maintaining viral suppression from these trials, right, in both treatment experience and treatment naive patients. But we also see that it was studied very specifically, right? These weren't treatment-naive patients who were just started on initial diagnosis. So Neha, could you brief the audience on the actual indication that's been granted by the FDA? Yeah, really important to note that the indication that was approved by the FDA was for those individuals that are virologically suppressed, so viral loads of less than 50 copies per mL, who are stable on antiretroviral therapy with no history of treatment failure and no suspected or known resistance to either cabotegravir or rilpivirine. The only thing I will note about the indication here is that unlike some other switch medications that are FDA approved, there's no time period that's listed in the package insert for Cabinuva. So individuals don't have to, in theory, be suppressed for three or six or a year before switching over to Cabinuva based off of the FDA indication. I think that's really important to note. And even I think the Department of Health and Human Services do make a note. They state at least three months, but you know, an optimal duration hasn't been examined. And I think in one study, obviously, they were just suppressed for a period of about 20 weeks. But in the other study, patients were on their therapies for a mean duration of, I think, about four years. So we really don't know what that time is as of right now. But with this combination being approved, who do we think or who do we anticipate it being prescribed to? Who do we think is going to be successful with this medication in current practice? Rodrigo, do you want to give us some of your thoughts? Certainly. So DHHS guidelines have recommendations on the type of patients in whom we should be considering this long-acting combination. And they say those patients with no baseline resistance to either agent, no prior biologic failures, no active Hep B, no pregnancy, and no interactions with concomitant meds. So to me, all these characteristics are fairly straightforward, except perhaps for the no prior virologic failure one. So I'm not exactly sure what this necessarily means, no 
prior biologic failure? Does it mean documented by a genotype or due to adherence? Or so does it mean to a specific agent or any agents? So I think prescribers may take a little bit of freedom with this criterion and maybe use it in people who have had, I don't know, maybe failed with an M184V or who are just tired of taking medications and they haven't been controlled in the past for that. And as far as success on this regimen, I'm thinking that although you're removing the burden of having to take oral daily medication, you're introducing a different set of barriers. So I'm thinking of our patients who have a hard time with transport to clinic or those who have no insurance or a way of paying for their visit or their administration fee or those who have a rigid work schedule. So all these patients are the ones that I'm really thinking could benefit from this type of medication Yet, I'm thinking they might be the ones who maybe will not be so successful, but hopefully improve and wrong in the future. Neha, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think with the current indication, really focusing on individuals that are suppressed or already suppressed, it would be really helpful to really focus on a population that's just had years of pill fatigue. They may be taking their medications, but it's really taking a toll on their quality of life. Individuals who have toxicities but are sort of bearing through it because they know they need to be on these medications, or even those individuals who still have disclosure issues, who are hiding their medications, that they have individuals where they just don't want them to know that they're on medications or don't feel safe with having their medications at home. And so I think that would be a really good population to focus on in the very beginning. As patients do need to be virologically suppressed and maintained on that oral lead-in for four weeks, I just would be really cautious to initiate this process in those who are already struggling with adherence of oral ART. Maybe this will motivate them to really sort of take those medications on a day-to-day -day basis, knowing that they can have light at the end of the tunnel with taking an injectable medication every four weeks. But I think the latitude study, which really focuses on our non-compliant patients and the use of cabotegravir for that population, would really provide additional clarification for best practices in this population. I think what also is really promising is that the majority of individuals in the ATLAS and the LATTE studies who did switch to the long-acting injectables preferred it. And granted, those were individuals who self-selected to be in a study, so maybe they were okay with being on an injectable. It gave hope that um, individuals actually preferred being on some of these long-acting injectables versus their oral antiretroviral therapy. And similar data is even seen with antipsychotics or other disease states where we're using long-acting medications for those disease states. I think that looking at the patient preference studies in the real-world population will be really interesting to really help us hone in on what population would really be successful on this regimen. Yeah, I have to completely agree. I think from the patient perspective, this could be a real game changer because I think that disclosure piece is really important. You know, HIV is still heavily stigmatized, though we've come a long way since the beginning of the epidemic. But, you know, getting the medications out of their social settings, out of their homes, putting in the clinic arena where they just have to get injected once a month, I think for, you know, a portion of patients is going to be a great quality of life booster. 
I'm sure um, people are anxious to know if a patient is prescribed this regimen with some of its complexities, what do we think this is going to look like in practice, both for the patient and for the clinic that has to implement this new process of giving long-acting injectables, which we haven't had to do specifically for HIV therapy as of yet? Rodrigo, what are your thoughts? Well, as we saw uh, in the FLARE and ATLAS studies, there will be an oral lead-in with cabotegravir 30 milligrams and rilpivirine 25 milligrams for a month up to the same day when the loading dose is injected. And this oral lead-in will be shipped by a specialty distributor to either the patient's home or the clinic. But then there's a I am loading dose, and this consists of cabotegravir 600 milligram, which comes in a single dose vial, as well as rilpivirine 900 milligram, which also comes in a separate vial. And these will require two separate gluteal injections in the clinic. The cost for this loading dose is estimated around $5,000, and it will be shipped from the specialty pharmacy to the clinic where it needs to be kept in the fridge. And then the monthly maintenance doses, those consist of cabotegravir 400 milligrams and rilpivirine 600 milligrams, again, in separate vials, separate injections, gluteal injections. And the cost for the maintenance doses is expected to be around $3,000 per month. So we're looking at monthly visits to clinic for injections, essentially. I think another consideration that needs to be discussed is what happens when patients are admitted to the hospital and they're on this therapy, right? So there has to be some documentation or knowledge of when a patient's next dose is due. And we have to think about this not guaranteed that this new medication is going to be available on all hospital formularies. We know, you know, in some places where there may not be a high HIV burden, some hospitals may not consider putting this on their inpatient formulary. One potential option would be bridging with the oral tablets while hospitalized, but as of now, the tablets are not going to be commercially available in the U.S. And you also have to think about for some patients who are admitted, they may be NPO due, due to various reasons. So this kind of provides a bit of a conundrum of what you're going to do if patients are admitted or if they're not in their usual schedules of getting to clinic. How are we going to make sure that they are maintained appropriately on therapy? Another question. So we think we know who will benefit from this therapy, what it will look like in clinics. I think for the hospital settings, we'll still have to figure that out on an individual or hospital basis. But Neha, can you tell us a bit about how the drug is going to be obtained and who will be paying for it? Yeah, so a little bit different than just writing a script and sending it to your local pharmacy. This process, as of right now, really starts from filling out a form that goes to Vive Connect, and either that's done electronically or by fax, that really allows Vive Connect to sort of do a pre-certification process for patients who may be able to obtain this medication. It helps determine eligibility. It also helps determine any insurance issues that individuals may run into to be able to initiate the long-acting injectable. So you really work directly with Vive Connect to be able to initiate this process. So you fill out the form to submit that to Vive Connect. You get some information back about the pre-certification process. 
And then once you have that, you know what specialty pharmacy you would be getting the medication from. It should be noted that you don't have to use a specialty pharmacy. You can do a buy and bill process. You can go through pharmacy benefits or medical benefits depending on the payer. But if you're like me and get really confused by the 8,000 payers that are out there, it's important to have someone else really sort of do the legwork for you and Veep Connect would really do that for you. So once you get approval, if a prior authorization is needed, then the prior authorization would be completed. And then you would be sending the medication or the prescription to a pharmacy to be able to get that medication done and filled. Once the medication is approved or the long acting part of it is approved, as Rodrigo had mentioned, you do have to do the oral lead-in part first. So Vive Connect would then work with the patient and the provider to ensure that they get the oral lead-in period, which has to be timed pretty well. So you would start the oral lead-in period and on the last day of your oral lead-in is your first day of your injectable medication. So scheduling that appointment would be one of the first things that you would do get their oral lead-in, and on four weeks after 28 days of being on it, the last day of the oral lead-in, they get their first loading dose for the cabotegravir and ropivirine. So I know Rodrigo has already gone over some of the storage information, how it needs to be refrigerated, and how long it can be kept out for. I think one of the things that's really important is that prior to administration, it does need to be brought to room temperature. So it usually takes about 15 minutes or so to be able to do that. And then again, just reiterating to make sure that you're on top of your prior authorizations, making sure that you have a dose for next month, which does change the flow of your clinic or your doctor's office a little bit, because that's probably not something most doctor's office really keep tabs of. Usually we get the phone call or the fax or some phone call saying, I can't get my meds. So it's important to make sure that we stay on top of expirations of prior authorizations to ensure that we can continuously give these patients their medications on time. Great point about the prior auths potentially being something new that clinics have to monitor for with this therapy. So when patients are on CABNUVA, how do you both anticipate this changing their overall management of their care and how they interact with the clinic? Rodrigo, do you want to begin? I think clinics will need to be fairly diligent and organized about monitoring administration, right? Who came and who failed their visits and tracking them down and getting them back in clinic for dosing. So in this sense, monitoring for monthly adherence will be shifted a little bit to the clinic staff and who will need to follow up with patients to bring them back in. But maybe right now, because of data from Atlas 2M, which is comparing every two months versus one month administration, and which seems to be about equivalent, maybe we'll have that extra month to get our patients back in clinic. So depending where you work or the populations you're dealing with, that month may or may not be enough to bring people back in for redosing if they failed their one month visit. And then the clinic will have to work very closely with patients who do plan to miss visits due to travel or whatever reasons, so they can have a bridging, oral bridging while they're away. I think the only other thing I would add is really interactions. Now having a long acting injectable where the half-life is weeks, it really changes how we would monitor the 
stopping and starting of other prescribers doing medications, the medication reconciliation process. It almost puts the onus on the prescriber now in the clinic to really make sure that we are monitoring any medication changes for that patient. It's important to note that even though drug-drug interactions are minimized by giving a long-acting injectable, maybe you're avoiding some of the absorption drug-drug interactions that we typically deal with with oral antiretroviral therapy, but it's not void of some of the metabolism drug-drug interactions that we still think of with cytochrome P450 enzymes and interactions there. So when those interactions do occur, when new medications are being started or stopped, it's important for not only patients to really make sure that they let us know, but the communication between providers is important as well to ensure that we can avoid these and really avoid harm for individuals. So it seems like there are a lot of moving parts for this combination regimen, which is going to require a shift in current practice for antiretroviral therapy management. Is there any standard protocol on how this should be implemented in different practice sites, Rodrigo? As far as I know, there is no exact protocol. I think there are two implementation studies ongoing at this time here in the U.S. It's called the Customized Study, and in Europe, it's called the Carousel Study. And basically, they're assessing both patients and providers on any barriers or any facilitators to implementing long-acting injections in their clinic. And they just presented early interim results last year at ID Week. And basically from the patient perspective, all the patients that were surveyed seemed to be fairly happy with their monthly injections and they didn't seem to be having major barriers to their monthly appointments. And similarly, from the healthcare perspective, all providers and clinics appear to be fairly optimistic about how the process was going. Some noted that they were a little bit worried initially, but it's been going well so far. So I'd be curious to know at the end of these studies how well or how easy it is to implement, but not only in the studies, but in real world as well, right? So I'm curious to see how it will work in my clinic, for example. So we covered a lot of information regarding CabNuva, but there are some ongoing clinical trials with both the combination and cabotegravir alone. So I'm really curious to see what are you both excited for that's upcoming? Neha, you can start. I think we can all agree that latitude would be really, really interesting as it really helps our most vulnerable population. And just a reminder, latitude is a study that focuses on adults who are already prescribed antiretroviral therapy who are still viremic. And these individuals may have a history of noncompliance or just maybe lost to follow-up. I'm interested in that as that would probably be the closest to our real world data and really helping some of those individuals that need the boost and trying to get as close to 100% or close to that 90% of those individuals to be undetectable. In addition to that, though, I'm also really interested in following the PrEP data. So as we move towards ending the HIV epidemic, prevention and treatment will be integral to make sure that we meet all of those goals. And so trying to identify cabotegravir's role or long-acting injectable roles in prevention, I think would be really helpful. I think that's something that we can definitely focus on. I'm really interested to see where that data goes. Yeah, same for me. I would say latitude is what I'm very interested in learning about. And because like Neha said, it will mimic a little bit more our real world population. 
And then I'm also interested to see if there will be more data from the extension of the FLARE study, the OLI part, where patients who were on maintenance oral phase were switched to long-acting, but half of the participants received oral lead-in and half of the participants switched directly to injections without the oral lead-in. So it seems from preliminary data that both arms did fairly well. And I'm curious to see further data and more numbers, more patients, and to see if we'll have to even use oral lead-in in the future. So stay tuned for that. I think I can agree. The latitude for me is what I'm really interested in. I see a lot of non-adherent patients, especially when they're inpatient. So if we could have An option for those patients, I think that would be really great if we could use a long-acting injectable, I think, for a subgroup of patients who potentially struggle with oral pills, that this could be, you know, a solution for them. I also think that the Atlas 2M study information is going to be really important. Rodrigo had mentioned they were comparing once monthly dosing to every two-month dosing. So if we can even extend that dosing interval, like there are going to be patients who like that even more, that's going to fit into their lifestyles even better. So I think that'll be really interesting to see if CabNuva gets the approval for the extended interval dosing. So from our discussion, I think we can all agree that finally having a long-acting injectable for HIV treatment was a long time coming. So before we close out, I'd like you both to state the one thing you're most excited about regarding the use of CabNuva. I'll go first. I think one of the things I'm most excited about is for so long, we've been really focusing on just one type of formulation that we had to offer for patients. Yes, we had liquids, but everything was oral. And I think being able to give patients the opportunity to pick their formulation or their modality of treatment is imperative for a chronic disease state. And I'm excited to really offer that to patients and to be able to give them a choice of how to really take their medications and to work this into their daily life. It seems to me that this medication indicates the start of a new era on how we approach HIV, right? So we may be doing away with the oral treatment and Maybe long-acting agents is the way to go for HIV. So that's very promising. And I'm very much looking forward to what's coming ahead for our patients. I would have to agree. I think with this new formulation, I think giving our patients more choice in their HIV management, letting them have more of a seat at the table as to what type of therapies they want to use is a pretty big deal. And it'll be a game changer for some people, especially I think this has the opportunity to help with a lot of stigma and disclosure issues that our patients deal with. And, you know, taking the therapy um, out of the home into clinic only, letting patients have more uh, control over when they have to go to clinic to get their medications. And the fact that they don't have to think about it every day, I think for some people, that's just going to be really amazing. I'm really excited to see when we start getting people on these therapies and we'll see, we'll see how they do, but the data looks amazing and I think it'd be awesome for patients. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I've been your host, Fidelia Bernice, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Rodrigo Burgess and Dr. Neha Pandit. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Zara Kasmali Escobar. 
It was edited by Kelly Hainan, Rajiv Shah, and Sarah Alosamy. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Aaron McCreary and Julie Ann Justo. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.